I was a merchandiser. I'd been to university, not the best university. I had a degree, not the best degree. I was good at my job, I wasn't the best at my job. Imposter syndrome was everywhere. And the phone rings, it's Pepsi. They're looking for an executive. Welcome to The Follow-Up from Premier Speakers Bureau, featuring in-depth conversations with the world's most in-demand keynote speakers. Our guest today is Rene Carroll. Rene is one of the world's leading executive coaches, working with some of the Fortune 500 and uh, FTSE's 100 top executive CEOs and their executive teams. He's the author of Spike, What Are You Good At? He's also advised world leaders from Tony Blair to Mikhail Gorbachev, along with many of the world's leading companies. So Rene, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, it's my pleasure to be here. So one of the things I'm really fascinated about is, you know, with strengths-based leadership, what is, what is that approach, how is that approach different than other approaches to leadership? So it's a great question, a great place to start. Everyone will recognize that every time they have a performance appraisal of their place of work, it tends to go something like this. Rene, there's two or three things you're really good at. Can we just park those? Can we focus on the 126 things you're not so good at? <laughs> and we'll spend the next hour or so on the 126 things. We'll produce a performance development plan for the next 12 months. I'm going to focus on all the things I'm not so good at. And the well-intentioned approach is we can all be brilliant at everything. Mm-hmm. Well, I've yet to meet anyone who's brilliant at everything. Everyone is brilliant at something, but no, no one is brilliant at everything. Mm-hmm. What if we turned it on its head? What if it went more like there are 120 limitations? Let's just part those. No matter how hard you work on those, you're going to probably get them to at best average or mediocre. These three things you are fantastic at. Let's try and get them to Olympian standards. So we're going to spend the next 12 months focusing on the three things you are superb at. That's how you accelerate your career. Not being average at a load of things, but being absolutely outstanding at two or three things. And here's what we see. Here's our virtuous spikes of The things I tend to be good at are the things I tend to really enjoy. The things I tend to really enjoy are the things I tend to be really good at. <laughs> and if we build our teams where everyone's focused on what they're brilliant at, that team becomes unbeatable. So today our lens has shifted. Not that long ago, we had an obsession for the best person for the job. Today our focus is the best person for the team. Everyone brings something different. The role of the leader is to take those diverse strengths and mold them into something superb and unbeatable. So you've been you've been working on leadership and focusing on that for a really long time. Have you always taken this approach, or was there a time when you when you took a different approach to leadership? You know, it's, it's more a personal experience <laughs> to feel all the time that you're spending the next year doing all the things that you're really not that good at, and because you're not really not good at it, you don't want to be faced with them every day. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to get a job at Pepsi at PepsiCo. And I moved from London to New York. And it was the the American approach that changed me. They wanted to win. We were a challenger brand. We're waking up every day facing the might of Coca-Cola. We didn't have the firepower. We didn't have the history. 
we just couldn't take them on in hand-to-hand combat. So we had to jump a little higher, run a little faster, take a few more risks. And what the chief executive did, when he chose his team, he chose them for their strengths. He didn't worry about their limitations. And what he did, he gave you every opportunity to use the things you were outstanding at. And what I found was I never had a bad day. I just never had a bad day. And where it came to was do a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. It didn't feel like work. And there's no better feeling than every single day I woke up knowing I was going to have a brilliant day. Hmm. So I was only going to do the two or three things I was really superb at. And what he did, which was the extra layer on this, and I've taken this into my coaching today, I've yet to work with a business leader that's brilliant at everything. <laughs> what I coach them to and what the best ones do, they have the humility to know all the things they're not so good at. Instead of working on those, they bring to bear the two or three things they're outstanding at, and they build a team around them that compensates for the things they're not so good at. So everyone in the team does something that the leader isn't brilliant at. And as we say, great players don't win trophies, great teams win trophies. And after Pepsi, I just got that. (laughs) So when I'm coaching people, I try to look what they're not so good at. Don't coach them on that. Coach them what they're brilliant at, but bring people in around them who compensate for the things they're not so good at. One thing you mentioned was, uh, you know, taking things the U.S. way. So how, what is sort of the U.K. way versus the U.S. way? Two things, two things. Um, U.K. and Europe, if you fail, that stays with you forever. It's a stigma. It's what holds you back. And you're probably not going to be given a second chance. It becomes very public. It becomes very difficult. When I got to Pepsi, I soon learned that in America, failure was learning. You can't learn without failing. And the American way was, if you failed, you've learned and you want it even more, you're going to give even more. So you're not just given a second chance, you're rated higher. You're going to bounce back. Given the opportunity, you've learned from that and let's back you because you're going to be even more driven to succeed. That's a hell of a difference. Mm. And, you know, and I found even in private equity, in the UK and Europe, if you've had a failure, you're probably not going to get a second chance. In America, it's probably why you're going to get the second chance. I just read this morning that Adam Newman from WeWork has just been given another back for another 350 million for his second property venture. That would not happen in the UK or Europe. Hmm. And I love the fact you can bounce back because you will try hard. If someone gives you a second chance, hey, you're not going to want to let them down. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting to learn because I know you speak with all different types of audiences around the world. Uh, U.S., U.K., Europe, um, you know, everywhere. And, and that's, that's a really interesting message to be able to share. There was a second thing that we, I picked up when I came to work in America. I had worked for Marks & Spencer's, one of the biggest and best retailers in Europe at the time. And in a very British way, they taught me everything about management, but not so much about leadership. Hmm. I came to Pepsi, 
They taught me loads about leadership and not so much about management. <laughs> but I've spent the rest of my career putting those two things together. The entrepreneurial flair, the guts, the drive, the big picture of America, the ability to back yourself no matter what, to start from nothing but keep going no matter what, with a more cautious, a more introspective, a more careful, maybe a more thorough, maybe a more planned, disciplined, structured approach of the UK. And it still resonates today. Hmm. What are the what are things that US leaders could learn from the UK? I know you talked a little bit about manage. Any specific things that, that you feel like they could take away? So this is a really good point, Brian, because leadership has changed in a way I've never seen it change in my lifetime. Five to ten years ago, we had the the leader at the top, leader at the top of the business, who made every call, solved every problem, authorized every activity on top of a hierarchical pyramid. Role model, Jack Welch, General Electric. I choose my words carefully here. It was usually the cleverest man in the room. Hmm. And they were brilliant. They were superb. But the pace of business, even 10 years ago, was slow enough, consistent enough, standard enough, that you could make, one person could make all those problems. And the world moved incrementally. Consistent and said, and we see five and ten year plans. Don't see them today. <laughs> we see five and ten year plans, and people hit them. And one person could run the enterprise. A few years after that, we saw the advent of technology, especially digital technology, and that just injected pace into everything we do, and the metabolic rate of every business increased massively. And it was multifaceted and complex. All of a sudden, one person couldn't make all those calls on their own anymore. What we saw at the top of the enterprise was more collaborative behavior. It was the team. And the leader became much more the collaborative leader, more empowering, more available to their people, nurturing them, nurturing the culture. And every voice was heard. And lots of different ideas came to the top of the, the business. Then the pandemic came. We've seen the biggest and most fundamental shift in business I have yet to see in my career. Because all of a sudden now, we've still got the technology things that it's really fast. It's really complex. But we're also seeing our resources, our colleagues are everywhere. They're no longer in their place of work. They may be at home, but they may be in different time zones. They may be in different territories. And there are very different hues and backgrounds. So all of a sudden, the role of the leader is to create an environment where everyone can thrive, where everyone can succeed, no matter what your background, no matter how you look, how you speak. The role of the leader is to create an environment where every single person can bring their authentic self to their place of work and flourish. And when I'm experiencing those, and we coach this, this new inclusive leadership, the results are phenomenal. Phenomenal. And if I just give you one line, say, it sort of brings the insight. The more I feel trusted, the more I go the extra mile. That's it. That's the driver. The more I feel trusted, the more I feel listened to, 
The more I feel I belong, the more I go the extra mile. And we're seeing some leaders completely transform the organization with that cultural change, enabling everyone to feel they're part of something special. How does a, and I know you're an expert on uh, diversity and, and when you're a leader is creating a diverse team, how do you do that? What's the best way to do that? Let me share a real story. I was at Marks and Spencer's. I've been there 10 years. I was a merchandiser. I'd been to university, not the best university. I had a degree, not the best degree. I was good at my job. I wasn't the best at my job. Imposter syndrome was everywhere. And the phone rings, it's Pepsi. They're looking for an executive. They're looking for someone to sit on that board. I didn't know what a board director did. <laughs> I knew they'd called the wrong person. It, it, there was no way it could be, it just couldn't be me. <laughs> As life had it, had it, it was me. It was April 1992, BG, before Google, way before Google. I find myself in Purchase, upstate New York. They gave me the job. I was shocked. My very first day of work was a board meeting. In those dark days, there were seven of us on the board, all men. Hmm. I didn't sound like my colleagues on the board. I'm a Brit. They're all American. I didn't look like them. I didn't sound like them. But they were fabulous to work with. They welcomed me. I felt great. I was waiting to be found out. The doors opened and in walks the chief executive, Larry. Gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to our new board director, Rene Carroll. Let me tell you a little bit about Rene. He had no notes. He had no Google. Rene's parents came from Gambia, British colony, to London, England, in the early 1960s. Brian, I nearly fell over. <laughs> I'd never put it on a CV. I'd never put it on an application. I didn't think it was going to help me in any way. He then went on to talk through my education. My infant school, junior school, high school, in chronological order, with no notes. Guess how he was making me feel? He talked through my university degree. But most of all, I'd spent 10 years at Marks & Spencer, nine different roles as a merchandiser. He named them chronologically, in order, with no notes and with no Google. Mm. I was close to tears. No one had ever spoken so long just about me ever in my career before. Guess how he made me feel? Mm. All of a sudden, I'm part of something special. All of a sudden, I feel like I belong. It felt like family. Brian, it lasted no more than three minutes. No, it's lasted me a lifetime. Mm. It made me feel what the power of inclusion. We didn't call it inclusion back in those days. It just, there used to be a TV series back in the day called Mission Impossible. <laughs> and my colleagues nicknamed me Mission Impossible. Why? Because if Larry had a job that couldn't be done, he gave it to me and I got it sorted because <laughs> of that three-minute talk. That's inclusion. Mm. The lesson is, how far do you go out of your way to make someone who's a little different who has a little bit of different background, 
different accent, worships a little different, comes from a different industry, comes from a different continent. Every bit you go out of your way to make them feel part of something special, you get that investment paid back massively, not just by them, but by everyone. Mm. It's not rocket science. You don't need to be an expert. Just be a decent human being. Mm. It works every single time. How are some ways that you've put that lesson into practice with people that uh, you've, I know you've said, you know, everyone, you know, has this leadership capability, but when you're the leader, how are some of the ways that you put that into practice? We're lucky enough to have worked with the Beverly Wilshire Hotel in Los Angeles. Um, for seven years on the trot, voted number one hotel on the planet. Mm. Todd, the general manager, he puts stuff into practice that just makes me so proud. <laughs> they have three, three guys that look after the doors. If you're a hotel, the guys at front of house, the people at the entrance, that's the touch point of your brand. Three African-American guys that work the three eight-hour shifts every day. And Todd has a management meeting every Friday, 10 o'clock. These guys aren't managers, but Todd invites them every week to come to the management meeting. Guess how that makes them feel? Hmm. No matter what shift they're on, they turn up. And they put their best gear on. They feel great. They're the doorman of the Beverly Wilshire. They feel, but you better get them pumped up. You get a better get them on their game every day. They arrive at the meeting, item number one, not item number 19, not item number 20, item number one. Todd says to them, guys, what's happened this week? What can we learn? What have we got wrong? What have we did? What did we do great? Guess how that makes them feel. Hmm. He will then say to them, um, let us know what we can do. Just by asking the question, he's created a connection. If he and his leadership team listen to them, they've done more than connection, they've created engagement. If they act on what they do, that's it. They've created trust. As I've said to you before, when you feel trust, you go the extra mile. The four most powerful words we can use in inclusion what do you think? Just asking those, those guys get pumped for the week. Todd cares. The management team cares. We're item number one. That's all the motivation they needed. I keep saying this. Forget the complex theories. Forget the massive collection of data. Forget the complex words. Don't be afraid. Embrace this. Look out for each other, look after each other. Everybody in, nobody out. Keep it optimistic, keep it courageous, but most of all, connect with everyone. Watch the difference. Watch your return on investment. I, one thing I'm curious about um, is that uh, you've also advised, in addition to companies, advised world leaders like Mikhail Gorbachev, Tony Blair. I think I saw a picture in there uh, somewhere online with you and uh, George H.W. Bush, maybe. Um, yes. What are... <laughs> what's great that? guy what's that he was a great guy yes yes no he's he's i had the pleasure of meeting him as well um and um and some of the others like mikhail gorbachev i couldn't believe how 
animated he was because in every picture he's got kind of the frown going and then in person he's very engaging. But uh, what are some of the questions that those leaders ask that maybe other leaders don't? Do you know the first thing they're human beings? Hmm. They're as brave as we are, as faulty as we are. They're as human as we are. Here's the lessons I learned from the very best. The very best, they share their vulnerability. For years and years and years, we were taught vulnerability is a weakness. I learned from the likes of Nelson Mandela, Mikhail Gorbachev, Bill Clinton, vulnerability is a strength. The ability to share the mistakes you've made in the past, the ability to be honest about when you don't know the answer, the ability to backtrack when you realize you haven't really picked up how your people were feeling. You'd underestimated what they could do. Fess up, own up. Tell the truth. You know, the four guys go, the, the leader takes his team into the darkest jungle. It's malaria, lacking water, way too hot. Everyone's sweating. They're trekking. It's been four days. It's been four nights. They're not enjoying this. He says, come on, just a bit more. Just stay with me a bit more. Eventually, he climbs up the tallest tree, looks around the jungle, and shouts out, hey, team, wrong jungle. Sorry, wrong jungle. People don't get angry with him. They admire his honesty. Mm. They admire his vulnerability. They admire the fact that he's made a mistake like they have. Do you know what that means? It means they're going to try a bit harder without fear. Mm. If the leader never makes a mistake, if the leader never gets anything wrong, if the leader appears to be perfect, I'm never going to share when I've made a mistake. Mm. I'm just going to hide it from you. If the leader shares with me that they're a human, they're vulnerable, then when I'm going to try really hard, if it goes wrong, I know my leader's got my back. I know my leader will support. It's one of the things we we coach the strongest is vulnerability, strength, not weakness. So final question here. I know um, you've you've asked this question of many others, but asking it of you, uh, what change do you want to see in the world? So what what does Rene want to see? This is really simple to say, a little hard to achieve, but it's one one for all of us. Nobody, but nobody, ever really appreciates the full power of inclusion until they've tasted the trauma of exclusion. It's only when you're left out. It's only when you're excluded. It's only when you're ignored. It's only when you're invisible. It's only when you're marginalized. It's only when others don't feel you exist. Once you've taken, if you can walk in someone else's shoes and taste that for a moment, your view on the world changes forever. Every time we've done that exercise amongst our leaders, very simple exercise, Many of our executive leaders live in quite a rarefied atmosphere. They have not tasted exclusion maybe since school, maybe since uni. And they live in a world where they're included in everything. When we give them the chance to experience what others live, then that experience helps them to understand, accept, live, but it becomes their thinking their conclusion, because they've experienced it. And the final message I would give with that 
We've got to try to walk in each other's shoes, bring everyone in, leave no one out, look out for each other, look after each other. But if you're bold, you might fail. If you're not bold, you will fail. This is a time to be bold. I want to live in a world where every single one of us, every single one of us, doesn't matter how you love, doesn't matter how you worship, doesn't matter your faith, doesn't matter your tribe, doesn't matter your race, that we can all come together. We can all change the world for the better. And every one of us is included. Why wouldn't we all want that? Thank you for joining us for the follow-up. To learn more about today's guest, go to premierspeakers.com. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen.